Brace yourself for terror you have never imagined. Your suffering will be legendary even in hell. And horrors you can never escape. And you wanted to know. Now you know. Last year, they brought hell to earth. Now, they'll take you they don't really ex- extrapolate it and make it actually she reads as a woman they, yeah that's ex- right exactly that's my point which you know they could have really leaned into that the genderless they're so modified to the point where they don't know gender they they've nothing identifying about their bodies in the book. And I know this cause I have the audio version of it that Clive Barker reads, you know, so it's all the inflections are as it was intended. Mm-hmm. Their voices are much like Google translate. It's just like a symbiotic neutral robotic sound, you know, mm-hmm. which whatever. Anyway, I'll save some of this for the episode. Yeah, sorry I missed some of that off the top. I'm actually rolling it right now because I kind of wanted to get some of that. Um, sure. Because well, you were talking about Hellbound Heart, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you read yes. it, Orion? No, I haven't. And, and also, but I guess before we start recording too much, I, I just but I did want to mention um, real quick. I know I picked the song for the last one, and it doesn't have to be on here, but at some point I, I'd be remiss not to mention that uh, Ilsa has a song called Hellbound. And it's literally just lines from this movie. So <laughs> uh, you, you you should mention it so it doesn't look so self-serving, Adam. Yeah. Um, but that, <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I actually didn't know that. Uh, what's the name of the song? Hellbound. Well, there you go. Makes sense. Okay. So we're back. We're doing a double feature here with our friend Orion Oblivion. Thanks for coming uh, back, Orion. Thank you guys for having me. It was a lot yeah, of fun. Of course, doing, always. Uh, Demons too, and I'm stoked to get to continue on talking about the uh, inter- interdimensional demon fuckery. Yeah, yeah. Like we were saying at the end of the last episode, this is a real, uh, a real demon's delight. A real. Uh, <laughs> a delicacy of demons, a, a duo of demons. Um, we're like unintentionally having these these uh, duos here that kind of mimic thematically each other. What we were yeah. saying with with Psycho Two and with um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two, they're both movies that are related to Ed Gein. Yep. Uh, so there's that, and then completely. By coincidence, we decided to do a back-to-back of two de- demonically related movies. So we're, we're, we're all in sync here, and I like that. That's good to know. So, But tonight we're talking about Hellraiser 2, Hellbound, or some people consider it Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. So, potato, potato. Uh-huh. You say tomato, I say fuck you. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
They exactly. were going to name Hellraiser 1. They wanted to name the first one Hellbound, and uh, I guess he got talked out of it, so this was this was like really what he wanted to call the series, I guess. Maybe Just in another stick world. Stick it in there dimension. somewhere. Sure. Well, yeah. and as we're having the discussion, the book is called The Hellbound Heart. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, a e- extrapolation of a short, Clyde Barker short story. Yeah, novella that Clyde Barker read. Um, I don't know how much I've talked to either one of you about this, but Clyde Barker is probably my favorite horror writer. I love his books. Uh, I have not read all of them, but most of them that I've read, I do love. I started reading Everville a while ago, which is the follow-up to The Great and Secret Show. The Great and Secret Show is amazing. I love it. Um, For those of you that are barker heads out there the the closest analog cinematically that was adapted uh was an adaptation of the great and secret show was the lord of illusion which the lord of illusion is actually a mashup of a short story and the great and secret show (laughs) so it was one of those circumstances yeah i love it too it's it's probably my second second favorite well, okay, besides Candyman, I guess. So, third favorite Clyde Barker-related adaptation. So, it's the first Hellraiser, this one, uh, Candyman, so forth, whatever. Anyways, because I do love this movie, <laughs> but as far as, um, I guess, like, direct from the source material to uh, cinema, I really like Lord of Illusion, which is interesting because I generally hate these cinematic adaptations where they're pulling from the source material and they're trying to cram way too much into way too little. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, One of the most, not to get off topic too much and sidebar too much, but one of the most egregious uh, examples of that was when they did the Queen of the Damned movie where they were trying to adapt... Two giant Anne Rice novels into one really shitty new metalified movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I have to mention because you brought that up, the Gunslinger. That's yeah. like a five to seven, fucking epically long novels. <laughs> Stephen King saga, all, all smashed into one shitty two-hour movie. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen that just because from what I knew, what you just said was so fucking egregious. I I I couldn't even bring myself to watch it because of that. <laughs> yeah, Barker yeah. kind of has the Barker kind of has the Stephen King curse when it comes to his movies sometimes. Like there's some good ones and there's some really bad ones. And all of the books are pretty good or at least, you know, they're better than the movies tend to be. So. What what would you say the best of of his of his books would be like like full you know books not the not like hellbound heart i love hellbound heart but it's a novella it's very short what would you say that the the most compelling of uh clive barker's works in literature would be are you talking to me or orion well just somebody give me something i think it's a great and secret show but I would say there. Here, okay, here's my critique of the Great and Secret Show that it doesn't seem to be as representative in that novel as it is in other Clive Barker stuff. Clive Barker is an amazing writer, and he has a, a really great way of of writing uh, 
uh, writing character, writing characters, uh, uh, lines in, in their books. Mm-hmm. I feel like in the great and secret show, as far as character monologues and any sort of like actual, like communication, the characters are having between one another, it's not as well written as it is in other books. I will also say this for people that are trying to get into Clyde Barker, because it is such a long book that maybe you might want to start with, if you want to bypass the short stories, but write read a, a novel, I would go for Cabal first, which is what, um, uh, what was, uh, why am I, uh, Nightbreed. Nightbreed was the adaptation from Cabal. And that's really good too. But my personal favorite is probably the great and secret show because it's so expansive and it's such an interesting story and what it gets into. It's just like the whole root concept of it is very interesting that it's like this essentially a disgruntled postal worker makes these occult uh, connections in the dead letter office of the post office. And he starts making these connections between all these different letters that there's this whole other subterranean universe that he needs to tap into through arcane and occult knowledge. Anyways. That's what, that sounds Anna. like some spy shit kind of turned. That's cool. I like that idea of it being like, that's like what spies used to send like CIA or whatever would, would send messages right. to each other. Codex. In newspaper. Yeah. The codex. R- I like make occulting that, making it like more uh, 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 mystical than it already is. Uh, totally, but totally. Yeah, I, I've only ever read. Uh, I, uh, coincidentally, I've only ever read Books of Blood too. So um, <laughs> I have Weave World, which is I great. I haven't read it yet, but but yeah. So staying on the sequels, yeah. I got, yeah, Books of Blood too. I love that. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, so. This was released in 1988 uh, and is a direct follow-up in, in continuation of the first movie. Uh, it was directed by Tony Randall, which is an interesting directorial choice for this movie. I didn't really read into why he was picked because this guy doesn't have a whole lot going on in terms of his works. It was like after this, he just did like a softcore porn movie and he's uncredited <laughs> with with directing Defcon four, which he did do shark Kansas. He did do shark Kansas. (laughs) Uh, so I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, you know, honestly, God, dude. All right. He was only an editor on, on shark Kansas, but he's into these portmento movies. He also was an editor on Piranaconda camel spiders. What the fuck? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this this guy's got a hoopty ass catalog here. Yeah. Uh so interesting choice for a director also given the fact that spoiler alert, I really do love this movie. It is one of my favorite sequels of all time. Um so the fact that they had what seemed to be a pretty inexperienced director at the helm is pretty impressive with what I feel is the outcome. So mm-hmm. I don't know. That's just how I feel. He also um, did. Uh, he also did Hellraiser three. Looks like, yeah, which is terrible, and that makes sense. Right. I mean, it's it's a, it's a severe departure. We were just talking about that off mic. Yeah, it's fun. So, it's fun. It's good it's, if viewed as a comedy. Right. Yeah. It's kind of almost like. It's kind of like once again going back to talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre two. 
it's like if they did that with Hellraiser, but it's not as successful or it doesn't do the job quite as well. Sure. So, um, but as far as stars, we've got a reprise of Doug Bradley, of course, synonymous with Pinhead, uh, Ashley Lawrence, who played Kirsty, and then Claire Higgins, who played Julia. And that's pretty much like a return of the cast from the original with... Of course, there's the flashbacks with uh, her father and then um, Frank, who I am drawing a complete blank on the character that played Frank. Frank Cotton. Or the the, the actor that played Frank. But Frank makes a return very briefly there towards the end. So uh, that's, um, he was in, he's in Stark. He's, he's plays Garrick and His name uh, is, uh, uh, Robinson. Chapman. Hmm. Sean Chapman no. played Frank in the first film. You're thinking of Andrew Robinson that played Larry, her father, that also plays Frank. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, you're talking right. about Frank. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Come, come to Daddy Uncle Frank. Is yeah, come to Daddy Sean, Uncle Frank, who Sean is Chapman. also... Right, that guy. Um, Andrew Robinson, for those of you that didn't uh, know it, was also the actor that played the, uh, what is it, the Scorpio Killer in Dirty mm-hmm. Harry. Oh, really? I guess he decided not, mm-hmm. not he decided not to come back for the sequel. So he's he's shown in the flashbacks, but they didn't add him in any other uh, scenes or anything. Ah, mm. yeah, gotcha. Um, so synopsis. Uh, anybody want to give a synopsis of this? What do you think, guys? Um, <laughs> now I got to think about it for a minute. Well, all right, uh, I didn't want to put anybody on the spot. So basically, the synopsis is. Uh, this is like a direct carryover. It's kind of like Halloween 2 being it's a continuation of the events yeah. from the first one, like an immediate, like the, the day after Kersey's put into a psychiatric ward after her traumatizing experiences with the Cenobites. Uh, we have an introduction of Dr. Chenard, who is the psych- psychiatric ward head. Um, that's there to oversee Kirstie's rehabilitation. And the various authority figures are trying to get a straight story as to what happened because she's just essentially babbling incoherently to them about these the story about these demons taking her father and her stepmother. And there's you know no evidence whatsoever to show for what happened. Um, and it, it's quickly revealed that Dr. Chenard has very evil machinations as to why he uh, is overseeing the psychiatric ward. He is essentially an occultist that is trying to tap into the world of the Cenobites or hell and unleash their powers. And in order to do that, he needs to have the mattress that Julia was murdered on to use her energy uh-huh. <laughs> to be able to, you know, create a spell to bring her back to life and to get in touch with the Cenobites. And that's, that's what Dr. Shannara is trying to do. And of course he unwittingly unleashes, uh, what would soon become his own undoing. Um, it's a pretty complex world building sort of movie in a lot of ways. Um, much more complex than the first one where it's basically you get introduced to the Cenobites and then they're dispatched. You don't know really anything else about them. 
Um, and they broaden out the. They do a good job of broadening out the, the the story too. So it's not just set in the house; it's actually set in the institution and in the and uh, in uh, hell. Hell, yeah! It's, it's it's more expansive than the first movie. Right. Yes. So it's a very it's a very very ambitious movie. Yes, uh, and in a lot of ways. Um. Um. It's right, and, and that's the thing that. It, it helps to anybody listening to this. It really, you would do yourself a favor if you enjoy Hellraiser to read the novella of a Hellbound Heart. That helps to like flesh out and explain and expand what the Cenobites are, their purpose, and what everyone who is trying to seek them out through these puzzle boxes, the interface of the puzzle box, what why they're doing that. The Cenobites essentially offer in some mythical way that no one can, you know, it's a mystery of what this means, but ultimate pleasures and, and pain. Right. uh, Equally. So much so that, you know, when the Cenobites arrive in the book and the novella, they are products of what these people are seeking. They are the like end result of seeking pleasure. Yeah. They're the manifest. They're like the psychic manifestation of everyone's darkest desires. Right. Or most extreme desires. And they're so, they're so modified to the point in which their physical bodies are completely genderless. They're completely sexless. They're modified by steel and the clothes they're wearing and they're just completely mutilated forms of people. That's all it is, is they're just forms. They don't even represent a gender anymore. And the the thing that's funny is that all of the people who um, seek out the Cenobites and all these pains and pleasures, they go into a completely naive to the fact that they're, going to be experiencing eternal pain just as much as it's like it's like frank cotton in the first movie and in the book he goes mm-hmm. into it thinking you know the the biggest thing he can think of as pleasure is like uh, orgies or something like okay well that's fine and great i guess but what's really going to happen is you're going to be skinned immediately and then you're going to have steel run through your entire body endlessly, you know, this kind He's of He's definitely so, a, a sadist. He seems like a sadist of some kind, at least. Yeah, right. But he, he, he foolishly signs up for this thing that he doesn't fully understand. And as soon as he gets into this world, he realizes that he's, this is not what he was seeking at all, which yeah. is, you know, it's kind of a it's kind of it's kind of a misnomer when the when the the peddler sells them the box. What's your pleasure, sir? It's like is your pleasure being fucking mutilated eternally? Because that's basically all that's going to happen. Yeah, it's another morality tale sort of thing going on, like we were talking about with the last episode, with like this con- conservatism that runs through a lot of horror being a, somewhat of a morality tale about people you know people engaging in these sort of activities and habits that ultimately are their undoing their mortal undoing i i'm not saying that necessarily that clive barker was 
trying to make that sort of point. Um, you know, you'd have to have a little bit more understanding about Clyde Barker's background. I think at the at the time, I don't think he was trying to say that. Now, if anybody knows anything about Clyde Barker, they they might know that he became a born again Christian. So maybe there might have been some complex. Yeah, he became a born again Christian, and I think there was maybe some complex internal issues that he was trying to deal with and expressing through these movies. Um, but we can leave that for in the in the 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 meat of the discussion. Um, yeah. Do you have anything else off the top that you wanted to mention, Orion? No, I think I think you guys hit hit a lot of it. Uh, I mean, I I, uh, I I kind of wonder like what is the I guess it'd be better for questions, but yeah, I think like what's this really about? Like you said, sort of this we're talking about in terms of like what did he intend this, the story to be? Is it is it supposed to be a cautionary tale? Is it kind of celebrating the, the ideas that is within it? Is it um, you know, I, I know that I've read that it came out of his experiences of doing like sex work and seeing some of these like rich sort of BDSM parties. So is there this right. other level or two where he's talking in the first movie, you sort of see the, you meet the Cenobites and sort of see them as being this like, you know, godlike power. And then in this movie, it sort of pulls the curtain back further to show you that like the Cenobites are actually just all working for Leviathan, and like Leviathan is like you know the Sauron type like you know, um, uh, being or well, power yeah. in, the, in the film. Yeah, and that's an interesting totally. thing when you go to the source material and the Hellbound Heart is that the Cenobites are they're kind of like. They're kind of like Virgil in Dante's Inferno. They're like the shepherds to b b bring Frank into hell and kind of show him his way around. I mean, he's part of it now, you know? I mean, it, there's it's not like they're mm -hmm. going to do anything for him and, and they're not going to, you know, they persecute him just as much as they heal him because it's all about infinite pain and pleasure. So in a way, I mean, they're not even antagonists in the book, there's a bigger and more powerful force in which they serve. Um, which I think that this story helps to uh, expound upon. Yeah. Those are both really good points to talk about uh, going into this. So that being said, let's move on to the good, the bad, and the questionable. Starting with the good, um, go ahead, Orion. Uh, well, I always really love just the way that the Cenobites look, and, and uh, I feel like in this movie, it kind of it shows you more than you see. I think in the first, not only is there more Cenobites, but you see more of the world that they're part of, the hell or whatever that that they're within. Um, so I really love like the matte paintings that they did of, of all the landscapes of hell uh, throughout it. Uh, um, I think there's obvious allusions to like MC Escher in, in the movie. They show you like a, in the puzzle room that Tiffany's in, they show you uh, an MC Escher print and a lot of the, 
landscape of hell looks like an MC Escher drawing. Um, the mats are also like, they use those for like the exteriors of the hospital and stuff. And they look kind of fake, but I also just sort of like how they look too. Like it looks like a, it reminds me of like that, like benediction, like crossing the Rubicon album cover or something, artwork of just like this vast world or something. And it's obviously fake. It's kind of a little bad, but it still has like a ton of character. Um, same thing with the special effects. Like I really like the, I think the, the, there's some like really cool parts with Dr. Chanard's uh, Cenobite where they're showing you his um, hands or his like different tentacles. And they have these like Ray Harryhausen style stop animations of like um, flowers blooming and fingers beckoning and different like knives and tools that are coming out of his hands. So I thought that was kind of a nice effect. Um, I really love the part where they go into reveal the sort of basement of the Institute sort of just taking you down into this like hell hole from like it being like this nice, uh, kind of, you know, standard looking hospital to the hell hole that's like underneath it. I thought that was kind of a, a nice effect and stuff. Um, and uh, there's a lot of like references to fairy tales and stuff in it that I like too. And it was making me, on, you know, on watching it again, I sort of was picking up on it that there's like at least two parts in the movie where they say something about like what either like this isn't a fairy tale or this is you know like yeah. something about a, a fairy tale. And um, I thought that was kind of a, a cool way to look at it. Maybe like maybe the first movie. So maybe it's kind of like saying that about the film itself. Like the first movie of Hellraiser is kind of like a fairy tale, but then this is just sort of like blowing that up and showing how much more infinitely complicated it all is and all of the different people's motivations and stuff. Because like we were mentioning like Channard or Frank and stuff, and it definitely seems like Frank isn't, isn't happy to be in hell, but it does kind of seem like Dr. Channard is sort of like into it, at least until he gets his brain scrambled. Um, but, uh, well, and then I think it's arguable hard. that even at that point, he's into it, kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's basically it. I mean, I, I, I like it. I, I just think that they do a great job of expanding first. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think, like, to talk about, like, what you were saying with, like, the the matte paintings and the way that they don't necessarily seem convincing, I think that adds to just the fantastical element of the movie you know that this is a this is a dark horrendous terrifying fairy tale this is a, a you know this there is that very illusory aspect to the whole movie again we were kind of talking about this with demons it can carry over to this is how much of this is reality how much of this is fantasy how much of it is a nightmare it all kind of like bleeds together in the movie. Hmm. So, um, yeah, along with the mat, I enjoyed the matte painting thing too. And I do like when something looks askew, you know, off, um, that claymation kind of element where you go, well, that's cool, but that's definitely, it doesn't move right. Um, that kind of thing. I like the cold muted color palette throughout the movie. And it was like this in the first movie too. It makes you feel very like lonesome and helpless. You know, everything is just shut off from, from, from you and your ability to interface with anything. Um, That 
cold muted palette definitely works well in the depiction of hell. And I like how they depicted hell, like you're saying, like a labyrinth. That's very mystical and, and um, fantastical fairy tale like. Um, and uh, it, it really works to, I mean, it's super ambitious, very, very bold to take such huge leaps to those big wide shots of um, Kirsty, you know, walking down these aisles to this yeah. monolith in the sky or whatever. I, I really appreciated all of that. Yeah. And I also like the fact that, cause I'm usually kind of on the fence with, with origin stories being represented in movies. Sometimes I feel like when uh, there's a background story being presented in horror movies that it takes away from the enjoyment of it. It, it reveals too much about the protagonist or the antagonist in a way that it doesn't really add anything to you appreciating the character, but I like in this, the very brief flashback of Pinhead's origin. Five minutes. Yeah, that's all in you need. Th- in this day and age, they'd make a whole fucking movie out of someone's right. origin story. <laughs> totally refreshing to go back to this in five minutes. Okay, he was a person. Looks like maybe World War One, something mm-hmm. like that. Got into the fucking box. He was an box. evil imperialist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, right. I put that and down that, too. I love that. And that says that's a whole other thing to get into is yeah, like penetrating into these territories, these unknown territories that can lead you into some deep shit. Right. Be it imperialism, be it into the occult, trying to, you know, traverse into hell. There's all those parallels that are being made. That's great. Um yeah, the Shannard's Dungeon of Horrors below the the what lies beneath normalcy, or at least what we consider as the accepted institutions that kind of make everybody like you know seem like they're sane. What's going on underneath all of that? Like that the, there's actually like these insidious things happening that creates people to you know think they're normal or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> there's that whole aspect of it. Um, I love the soundtrack. I'm assuming it's another Christopher Young soundtrack. That main theme that's kind of reprised throughout it. This is like the opposite of Demons, where we go back to traditional orchestration and the bombastic, you know, orchestral utilization. Yeah. Yeah. So that's great. Great effect. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I mean, the two movies have some similarities in that, you know, the special effects are about. I'd say this movie, the effects are better, but you know, they're on that same kind of level where it's like this body horror thing going on and stuff. But right there, the score says it all sets it off. This movie is decidedly darker, more serious. You take it serious throughout. Whereas that other uh-huh. movie where it's demons too, is something more akin to like a modern dusk till dawn or something, you know, where it's just like fun and yeah, farcical, and silly. Yeah, farcical yeah. for sure. Rock, rock 'em, sock 'em, sort of. Yeah, uh, sort of movie. Yeah, and like talking about body horror again. To me, uh, or sorry, I'm jumping ahead. To me, Barker is in a lot of ways 
parallel quintessential body horror to like Cronenberg. We were talking about Cronenberg in the previous movie with like the references to Videodrome and stuff. But I feel like Cronenberg and Clyde Barker in a lot of ways in in, in those 80s movies were going toe to toe with the body horror. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, lots yeah. of maggots in this movie. Yeah. Lots of maggots, the, the degloving and flaying of flesh. Yeah. People's relationship to sensuousness and a, like... Clyde Barker, more so than Cronenberg, though, I feel like really does this deft representation of intertwining the erotic with the horrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. Well, and I mean, that's the whole the destroying something beautiful. I mean, that's that's the thing that makes it so shocking to me. It's uh, you're taking two things that do not belong in the same space and you're slamming them together. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolute pleasure, absolute pain and horror all mm-hmm. wrapped into one fucking amalgam mass or whatever. Right. Um, yeah. Sexuality that, and beauty being mixed up with. Yeah. Just gore right. and <laughs> and blood. It is, it is all messed up, yeah. like, mixed up like that. It's always been. <laughs> Yeah, right. well, that's I mean, like, that's holy. that's the thing is it, the the Hellbound Heart, the story in which this is all you know extrapolated from. Um, it's it touches on things that I think are probably unanimously scary to everyone. It's that there's these people who have this dark obsession. You know, I mean, any story that you hear about like it sounds horrible but like you know some ch- child pornography ring some dark web f- exploit that all these people these rich people these thrill seekers are after you know it's like the the real life hostel or whatever mm-hmm. um that is as graphic and disgusting and shocking as it is it's probably the most um, compelling stories for people to seek out, you know, because it's like the, the most extreme um, hyperbolic expression of, of humans. So this, yeah, these, this movie and the, and the previous movie and just the story in general is appealing and that, it's unlike other horror movies where it it starts with a f- a person, it's like there's a demonic entity, of course we all know that, but it starts with a person welcoming him in, a wicked, evil, venomous person. Mm-hmm. You know that's what starts it all, and I don't know that that's Sally's not that bad. <laughs> well, it just makes you wonder what these other Cenobites had to do. To, you know, like what kind of wickedness were they into to become, to get into this world? And it's through time. I mean, it's like, you know, you see that Pinhead's character is fucking way back. Um, I know that the Chatterbox character is like a kid. Um, yeah. Or whatever. So it's just like, oh, yeah. I don't know if you're, I don't know if it's meant to draw so much subtext from, but to me it just shows like throughout time people welcome p- 
people welcome the bestiality and the the barbarism that's to come. They asked for it, Mm -hmm. you know, it was, they invited in and they they invited into their lives. And so that to me is like a major good with this story. Yeah. And Orion, like when we were talking to you on the Ilsa episode, we were touching upon the whole intertwining of the horrific with the erotic a little bit in that movie. But I think we were pretty, uh, much in agreement that in Ilsa, there's not a whole, a whole lot that's like very titillating from it. But I feel like for me, at least like Barker somehow like does that a little bit better where you're just like, Oh, that's kind of hot, but like, <laughs> you know, but it's like fucked up. Like, yeah. you know, you're seeing uh, something you shouldn't be seeing, but you and you can't, you don't want to look away. It's not that you can't, it's that you choose not to. Yeah. 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 Is there any, there's some great, oh yeah, there's some great shots in this too that I really like. Like, um, I really love the POV shot of like Tiffany looking at the puzzle when she first gets it and stuff. Like, he, um, the, the director, I, I thought it was Barker, but actually, um, Randall, he does a, a, a nice job. There's some, there's some, uh, um, kind of like artfully done, uh, um, shots at, throughout the film. I mean, I, I, I love the, um, scene of, uh, uh, uh when um, uh, Christy has the hallucin- hallucination of her, her father um, writing "Help me, I'm in hell" on the wall, like that mm-hmm. scene is just like yeah. so so cool and such a great like yeah. setup and so scary and stuff and like going to what you were saying about just like really just breaking down reality and stuff because then it just like disappears. Dad disappears, but then the blood is still there on the wall, and then she goes to touch it, and it's like still bloody. It doesn't disappear or anything. So. Like right off the hook, you're like, all right, there's gonna be like some fuckery going on in this too. Um, but I also like that they spare Tiffany, the little girl, when they uh, when when she is tricked by um, Doctor Channard and Julia to, to open up the, the box, uh, uh, and Pinhead mm-hmm. stops the other Cenobites from from killing her. Um, and uh, he's got a great line where he's like, um, "Not hands that call, it is desire." And, uh, oh, yeah. it, that, that's when they, they see that it's not, you know, like they all focus their attention then on Julia and um, Dr. Channard instead. Um, and, and they don't, I don't really know if they ever tell you what happens to Tiffany. Um, uh, oh wait, she's, yeah, she survives, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, that, that, that I like that they let her live, that they, that they're basically like the Cenobites have sort of a code of honor or something, or at least like Pinhead does to where they're like, all right, like you technically opened the box, but it wasn't your intention to do it. So we're not going to show you all the pleasures of hell. <laughs> well, right. And that goes back to the book too. And the book, mm-hmm. you know, you open, you invited this in as once again, it's, it takes a person with a, a dark mind and soul to invite this shit in. Tiffany didn't have anything to do with it. She was just pulled into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. they, they can see that because in the book, they're like omniscient, omnipresent in a hell dimension, but they they know everything that's going on with these people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um I yeah, that that's cool that they can make that delineation and not just kill everybody because they're yeah. there or whatever. One thing I also wanted to bring up while we were talking that I love about Barker is I think Barker also does a good way of introducing a cult 
elements into his movies in a way that are not hammy or cheesy. Like they, to me, they reflect what it's considered like real arcane sort of researching or whatever, mystic studying. Um, to me, like that's what I love about Barker is he's so well-rounded, right? <laughs> you know, he's he's able to take all of these subjects that he's trying to bring together in a way that it's like, oh, he really understands these things. He actually studies these things. It's not just some sort of textbook or just very pedestrian sort of approach. Yeah, to, yeah. You know, intertwining all of these complex sort of things together. Right. Yeah. That that kind of goes into how you and I, you know, it really great, like grates on me bad when somebody doesn't do like do any kind of effort at all to explaining why it's just, oh, um, a cult. There you go. That's all I got to know. Let's, let's right. move on. Instead, I mean, it's, you know, th- the fact that Chenard has got all of this um, literature and things throughout his house. Like you yeah. can, you can definitely buy into the fact that he is a dyed in the wool occultist. Yeah. Know? That he's, yeah. he's, he's invested in this so much so that he's going to risk the front of being like a, um, uh, you know, ambassador. A respected. Of- a respected, yeah. yeah, like um pedestal. Respected psychiatrist, yeah. Exactly, of, of mental health, just so that he can get specimens to get closer to this thing that he wants. Which brings me to another point in the goods that I wanted to bring up. Obviously, the get them off me scene, the maggot scene, the first oh, yeah. invoking of the... Th- that's awesome. I, I really like in the... When he goes down to the maintenance floor and there's like kind of vignettes of each type of psychotic looks into the <laughs> totally, cell yeah. and he sees the kind of rather than just, okay, there's a bunch of Looney Tunes down here. You get a chance to see each one and how they're different for a second. But the whole way that scene plays out, you know, he knows he has the mattress now and everything. So he can do this thing and he kind of maybe has an idea of what's going to happen, but it really rolls out the, uh, it, it helps substantiate how sadistic Chenard is that this is something that he has planned out and that he probably would have done anyway for his own sick pleasure. But now it works out perfectly because he's, you know, He's going to invoke the spirit or, or, or so he thinks or whatever. Um, but it, it just, it helps to illustrate how this is definitely the kind of person that I was talking about where it's like, it takes a fucking sadistic, violent person to, to beget everything else that happens, you know? And he's like the perfect example. You can see it. This dude's got this fucking hallucinatory, uh, uh, psychosis give him a fucking straight racer and just see what he's gonna do yeah, yeah I mean, that's that scene is great too leading into the birth, so the rebirth good. of julia the, the re- yeah. rebirth of julia like right after that too it's like it's such a powerful scene because yeah the, the self-harm and then when he's seeing his like delusions and seeing all of the like maggots on him and stuff and 
Yeah, and then just from that to Julia bursting out through the mattress and stuff, it's just like so cool. And yeah, uh, yeah, one of the best, I, best parts. Yeah, I love Julia's emerging scene. Like it's such a really unique take on necromant, like necromantical sort of representation in movies or in you know invocating a demon <laughs> yeah and i mean i i'm surprised that movie has a rated r because that whole scene is gross very oh, gross yeah. i mean that you see from his point of view that he's covered in maggots and vermin and worms and shit and then the answer he's happy to slice his skin off He's so happy to have that straight razor. So just like the mental element is disgusting. And then it's just a fucking bathtub of gore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Real, real good, real good illustration of just how fucked up this whole situation is. There's one thing I want to bring out. Speaking of Julia too, is in the first movie, obviously intentionally, Julia, to me, is represented as a very, very unlikable character in a lot of ways. She's very conniving and villainous, and she, like, is a sociopath. Um, There's something about this representation of Julia, this reborn Julia in this movie that I like so much more. And Mm -hmm. she's, she's much sexier as a you know, the way she's represented in this movie. And obviously I feel like that's all intentional too. It's just like how she's reborn even stronger. She's this untouchable being in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, in the first movie, she's got this naivete about her. She's this innocence, not just kind of tiptoeing into this sadist shit. And in this movie, and even the way she looks, I don't know if you picked up on this, but to, to me, her facial features, she's very like feline, which, yeah. you know, historically c- cats are like a satanic symbol, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were you going to say, Orion? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's I think it's great how she's got that um, kind of Grey's Anatomy look to kind of hearkening back to the doctor and, and, and sort of his fascination with the. Uh, the body and the mind and everything like he basically summons this demon who looks like uh just like a completely flayed person or something um i thought that was kind of a a cool touch to 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 add into it um but yeah yeah and just like the raw sexuality of a completely flayed (laughs) nude body (laughs) that whole yeah there's so much that can be talked about too He's like icked yeah. out by her at first. She she asks for the mattress and he like pushes it towards her with his foot, sort of like right. like grossed out. And, and same thing with the with the patient who's like um, has the delusions. Like he's he, he just kind of like wants him to get it over with so that the um, invocation can happen. Like he's doesn't really seem like he's enjoying watching him cut himself up. He's kind of just disgusted by the guy and um, right. But yeah. Right. Well, it's again talking about like Julia in the first movie and Julia now. It's like he hasn't crossed the threshold yet. He's just like in his mind, it's all been theoretical at this yep. point. Yeah, exactly. You know? He's got to have point. some misgivings. Mm-hmm. He must have some misgivings of what am I actually getting into right now? Right, right. Well, it's kind of so, meek still. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, 
Yeah, we've talked about that underworld scene and just how amazing and expansive it is and just the the parallels of like the metaphor of the labyrinth of actual hell or the underworld and the labyrinth of the mind. There's references to that and things that Chenard talks about and things like that. And, you know, the darkness, the labyrinthine darkness of the mind and how it's reflected in the actual physical labyrinthine darkness of, of that, that world. Yeah. (laughs) And all of like the phallic references when Chenard makes that full transformation and there's those like tendril things that come out and there's the, the, the big daddy like vacuum suction tendril that that engages (laughs) with his head and just completely yeah, the, <laughs> right. The immersion blender, where it's just like any any sort of um, what would be considered any resemblance to being a human and having human consciousness is completely sucked out at that point. He becomes a complete apparatus for hell for Leviathan, <laughs> where he's just like, like writhing. Like- yeah, that's like just right after he says to like, "Oh, to think I hesitated," and then they like scramble his brain like right after that. Yes, yeah, that gave me like a kind of. I, I it's weird to say it in this regard because this movie came out way later, but kind of made me feel like Event Horizon, like when yeah. the ship comes back and you know he's he's horrified by what it's done, but then immediately he has this like uh, pride about it or something. Like that's yeah. To think that I, I, and then his, and then his brain gets blended and it's immediately like horrible, but, but then he's into it. You know, I mean, that's the, that's the total epitome of absolute pain and pleasure pushed into one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, another thing I really like about this is when uh, Christie's descending further into or in different parts of hell and she's about to meet Frank in his chamber. I like how monastic it looks. And of course, that clearly is like referencing also the Cenobites being their monks. That's what Cenobite means. It's like it's a term for a monk. But there's that whole monastic look to that inner chamber. And then there's the parts where there's the bodies on those slabs that yeah. just float in and mm-hmm. out under the sheet. Yeah. Yeah, the that beds, ghost, the sexy Murphy bed ghosts. <laughs> yeah, totally. It is the sexy Murphy bed. <laughs> the sexy uh, ghost. Who Murphy knew? Bed. Who knew there could be such a thing to make a Murphy that's bed un- cool in any way? <laughs> that's Uncle Frank. So uh, actually, there's a, a Murphy bed in Demons too. Also, um, that that she shuts up the, the little gremlin demon in. Uh, that's, but yeah, that's that's Uncle Frank's hell because he's not allowed to have sex with any of them. They just they just roll in and out and tempt him. That because he, yeah, uh, he says him, it, he right. explains it to Christy. Yeah, Uncle Frank. Yeah. Can't oh play. yeah, that's 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 I think true. Uncle, I think Uncle Frank just has a fucking hellacious fear of Murphy beds. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them in there to torment him. <laughs> I do too. Really, have you ever tried to sleep on one of those fucking things? Yeah. Or like, yeah, getting uh, stuck in one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, there's also this overarching idea of like the the idea of evil toys. Uh, something that is innocent that's supposed to, you know, that 
there's also that level of talking about uh, childlike pleasure and how a child acquires pleasure from playing with toys. Right. But now we've we've made toys evil in this movie as well. Yeah, because <laughs> that's yeah. what all the 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 lamentation configuration is just a toy. So it's right. an evil toy. No matter what generation or your age, everything is everything's against you. It's been weaponized. Yeah, what were you saying about the, the tagline? Tag uh, it's, it's time to play. So it definitely has right. the, the toy or like the game aspect of it in there. Right. All the play on, yeah, being a child, the play on playing, whatever. Yeah, maybe trying to capitalize off of child's play or something. Who knows? I mean, they, they have like the, the she's kind of like a, a, a poltergeist girl. They got like the, the cute, mute blonde girl it's a right. kind of another 80s trope um yeah that's true i wanted to mention notably chenard's death like uh it's particularly disgusting which is good because he's a particularly disgusting person um it just adds to the gross. I mean, with the fucking raise the piano wire grid coming out and chopping them up in that weird little booth thing. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was good. It was good poetic. Yeah. The Matrix. Matrix coffee yeah. death machine. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the Futurama kill booth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's the part where Julia. Um, where she her whole skin gets completely removed oh, again. The degloving, yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah, that's really great. Also, I love that. Um, okay, anything else? Uh, I think we can move on. This is one of those mo- movies for me that it's very heavy in in the good. So yeah, yeah, we should just move on. Uh, so the bads. I don't have a lot of bads. All I can think of as bad is when Julia is at Chenard's and she puts on his uh, suit and she's getting the the blood all over his apartment. I'd be like, man, homegirl. <laughs> um, yeah, for me, I, I got a few. I got a few bads. Um, okay. The the Kirsty Kyle break into Chenard's house and scene i think that could that could have been rolled out completely different because then just julia's in there and it's not like um there's no cover story there's nothing and clearly as an audience we know julia doesn't care she's a fucking demon she doesn't care why they're there she's gonna kill them anyway but from Kirsty's point of view it's like nothing to it's just like oh surprised but oh don't go in there you don't want to go in there blah 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 that whole scene was just stupid to me um <laughs> i could have done either without it completely or just done differently um frank's death scene stupid i mean it was like frank was such a important powerful character in the first movie and this one they just kind of roll him in roll him out on his murphy bed of hell you know <laughs> Um, and along with that, a part of what makes that scene so stupid to me and throughout this movie is Julia's stupid little quips, you know, the nothing personal, babe. 
and and then mm-hmm. she kills Frank or whatever. And then um, you could never hold on to anything long, Kirsty. Like when Kyle dies or whatever, or when she's there's that like torrent of wind blowing her through. Just stupid shit like that. Shenard, all of his dumb little fucking remarks throughout when he's the Cenobite. I mean, you got to imagine that he has some kind of autonomous control over his thoughts and he mm-hmm. thinks to just come up with these stupid one-liners. That took yeah. me out. That <laughs> took me out of it. That's like m- making this iconic character of these Cenobites into something that's Hollywood. He's making like, you know, quotable comeback line shit shitty freddy um, one one-liners yeah right yeah, yeah. Totally. Right. that's what i was gonna say that's just they're just trying to capitalize on the the zinger the freddy zingers yeah um <laughs> let's see the whole like tiffany's hell funhouse scene uh, yeah. i mean there's some shocking imagery i think that it was just shoehorned in to show some shocking imagery of that fucking like jester with no eyes and stuff. But other than that, I don't think unless they were going to go into every one of those characters, private hell while they're in hell, I think you could have just cut that right out and it would have been better. Um, Let's see. I'm trying to burn through these here. The Cenobites really don't have much of a role in this movie. They're in it pretty like minor, minorly, you know, Mm-hmm. They're kind of a supporting character, which I guess is cool in a way, but they're the most compelling part of these movies. The way they look and everything, I want to see more of them, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I got a couple more, but I'll cap it off with the f- the plastic baby. Yeah. On the monolith, you know? I mean, <laughs> I, get, I, I get that... That's probably too horrific to um, show a child sewed up and stuff in the same kind of effects that they did everything else because yeah. they would probably get an NC-17 or whatever. But was it important enough to show the baby if it means you have to make the sacrifice and showing a completely obviously plastic ass from, you know, the fucking health room baby <laughs> yeah yeah it is, is it it is like a presentational like prop baby that you <laughs> yeah. would use in a health in a health class or like a some like a sex ed class yeah. or something yeah, yeah i, I thought showed, the same thing they showed a couple times too they, right. they totally do it right at the end of the movie too they cap it off a fucking plastic baby not scary mm-hmm uh yeah that was, that was my big one that was my big one right there was the baby and the, I, I don't really care for like the death pillar um it looks cool when it comes out of the mattress but i feel like it always just looks like like what did somebody make that in hell or something like it just looks like half-assed or like <laughs> right <laughs> like yeah this. if you have an eternity in hell to make this monolith of your trophies you'd think that you'd spend a little more time i mean it did a lot of modifying to your body. You got some sick fucking leather gear and stuff. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, isn't there like a little you know, plastic skeleton? There's like a little skeleton. Yeah, yeah, a tiny, like a little tiny skeleton, <laughs> j- j- like uh, shimmying <laughs> around on there. I mean, uh, fuck, man. Yeah, make well, your, you make know, your mod- zazz it up. 
zass up the yeah. monolith. That's all I'm saying. Well, you know the 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 Cenobites they had a they had a gift card for Spirit Halloween. They had to <laughs> use it before the end of the year. Yeah, <laughs> I just I also got kind of like a love hate. I got like a love hate with the with the Doctor Channer and Cenobite because I do like the animation of on his tentacles and stuff, but I also just I don't like the mecha like that they tried to like introduce the mechanized sort of aspects to it. Like I, I like the Hellraisers when they're just more like medieval looking almost. Um, I, I don't want to be seeing like you know them have a, a bunch of like electronic parts in them like they're the fucking Borg or something. <laughs> they were he was very borgish and the thing that bothered me the most about his character is that he's completely carried throughout by some weird tentacle agenda dragging him around by his head you know through the entire <laughs> fucking th- it's like if you needed if you needed like a trail of breadcrumbs out of hell just follow that fucking snake thing that's on his head to wherever it's coming from, and you could probably get a pretty good idea. They had yeah. to use a, a they had to use a different actor for that for those scenes too than the one that played Doctor Channer because he couldn't fit into the rig for the that oh costume. Jesus, just take the fucking blender, you know, tentacle out of it, and that would have made me a lot happier personally. Yeah, yeah they also sucks. Speaking of using a double, uh, they used a different actress for the the flayed Julia as well. Hmm. It's oh, not yeah, the same actress. She, she did look different. So, yeah, her bone structure definitely looks different. Um, questionable. Uh, oh, what? Uh, boy. Oh well, hang on there. Ryan, what questions do you got? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll do. I'll do. I'll be pretty quick with them. Uh, <laughs> first off, right right off the bat in the movie, why is the detective interviewing Kirsty like right after this happened? Like while you know, it seems like he's she's like at the hospital for this like traumatic death of her father and stepmother and stuff, and then like the detective is just like pestering her, even though she's obviously like totally out of it. Um, because she's the number weird. one suspect, of course. He's just trying to get down yeah, to the I bottom. <laughs> uh, where what happens to Christie's boyfriend? Like he survives and he's in the hospital, but then he's just never in the movie again. Like they just replace him with Kevin. Uh, uh, well, hey, Julia said it. Julia said it. She could never hold on to anything good for long. So there you go. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. The. Uh, uh, how does Kevin sneak out after watching the birth of Julia? They never really show you how he gets out of the house after watching her, her get born and everything. Um, the, the mute girl, Tiffany, she doesn't react to any of the dead bodies that are like around when she's uh, at one point in the movie, like when um, she's Channard brings her into like that room with all the bodies hanging and she's just like totally nonplussed, like has no response to it at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, when they catch Christy again, but then they let her run around hell. I thought that was kind of weird too. That they're just like, I was like, why would they? They like catch her and stuff, but then they're like, oh, you can go exploring. I guess we'll get to you later. I think probably Brandon will have some things to say about because Brandon, you have kind of your own strong opinions about the tactics of the Cenobites. Uh, eh, always, always. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I got to tell you, for as iconic as they are. And you know, creepy and stuff. They are the stupidest, most lackadaisical 
antagonists in any horror franchise, in my opinion. Like stupid as in unintelligent. Um, should should I should I go down my litany of questions here? Okay. The the floor is yours. I yield my time to you, Senator. Uh, 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 all right, all right. Uh, I'll get this done in hopefully like five minutes. Okay, we're making good time, so go ahead. You know, you're so, good. So so, Channard Shenard. I'm not sure how you want to. Yeah. Say it, but potato, potato. Yeah. So Shenard's rambling final solution speech near the beginning when when his character comes in. And he's talking about the mind and its infinite maze. And and mm-hmm. we're getting closer to finding a final solution. Solution to what? I mean, t- solution to why you're just blending people's brains open? I, they, they, <laughs> it was weird to me that he used those words, a final solution. I mean, that's synonymous with the Holocaust. But right. what is yeah, he I trying to say? Purpose. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure it yeah. is. But it... If I had to watch it twice and I still didn't come up with any point to what he's dictating to the rest of his like surgery, surgery, neurosurgery class or whatever. So, yeah, is he doing uh, psychosurgery? Is, is it like brain, he's doing like he's like in charge of a mental hospital, but then he's doing brain surgery. So is he supposed to be doing some kind of like psychosurgery, like a lobotomy style ta- procedure? I don't, I don't but, know. Yeah, doesn't explain. And then he he gets pretty you know profound in that speech, but it's just a rambling. He gets to no logical conclusion. Um, Christy rubs wall blood in her mouth, demonic, hallucinatory wall blood. She rubs her finger on it and she puts it on her mouth. Why? Why would you? I, I we know from the first film and this one that the blood brings back the invokes the spirit. Why would you even play with that kind of fucking fire? She thinks it's her father and really it's Frank. So it's like double bad. That's what brought Frank back to the, our world in the first place. Um, yeah. She probably knows what her dad's blood tastes like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like <know>. you do. <laughs> of course. Of course. Uh, why? And how is it ethical at all for extreme psychotics to be on the maintenance floor? I mean, in like a <laughs> fucking rundown, dilapidated. And that runs into another question that I have, which is that, um, you know, does the psychiat- the board of psychiatric health like not do any kind of inspections of their facilities or do the background checks on who they have as basically the director of the the Looney Tunes bin, <laughs> you know, I mean, if they did any modicum of research into Chenard's personal life, they would know that he's like a fucking freaked out occultist <laughs> that, that does not have the mental faculties to be running a place like this, especially when, you know, just so happens that under the basement floor on the maintenance wing, the most like dilapidated, there's fucking shit leaking out of pipes and whatever. He's got the most extreme patients that need the most care just down here in the fucking, the doldrums, you know, well, the, that's just the end of this tor- fucking torture. Well, right, but it's the what, torture chamber. <laughs> does, does he then move them up when, when, Oh, here comes the, the you know, wh- who, whatever officials 
come to inspect your facility? Does he just then again move them up into general population? <laughs> you know, um, the lady Cenobite, I, I don't know. She's in the first one too. You know, she's got like the tracheal fucking wires through her and stuff. Yeah. I don't know if you guys noticed when she appears in this one, she's, she's like playing with her knives and those knives you can see are on like a little cord to her belly. That gives her like a foot of pole. She's got a real short leash on her knives. I don't, I mean, it's, you're not supposed to look into this kind of shit, but maybe those, maybe those cords are like retractable. Yeah, maybe like the, maybe the retractable knife belly cable. <laughs> right. So you don't lose your blade in the flaying carnage. It opens up her throat. Oh yeah. There you go. It's like a, yeah. it's like a, it's like a pole fucking book for kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Um, pop up. So yeah, it's a pop up. <laughs> um, the the Cenobites are omniscient, or at least they are. They're, they're like all knowing, in at least the book. And you would have to think they have some kind of mystical powers. So wouldn't they know that Kirsty didn't open the box? I mean, you know, they act so surprised when she's like, "I didn't do it," <laughs> or whatever. Um, yeah, I, I have so many problems with the Cenobites. I mean, in this movie, they go, you know. Uh, oh, this scene I'm talking about, Kirsty. You know, before you didn't open the box, or that you did, you opened it and you didn't know what it was. Now, as you know, no more excuses. They say, you know, no more excuses. De de defy us again. No, no delays. Defy yeah. us again, and your punishment will be legendary, even in hell. And then immediately she goes, "I have information. Go on." Right. <laughs> like immediately, there you go. Right, right out the door. There goes all of that fucking intelligent persecution of Kirsty. Oh, she's got information. Well, stop everything. Let's believe her again. Mm -hmm. They are the fucking dumbest. Oh, Jesus Christ. Let's just say the Cenobites would be really big into buying NFTs and cryptocurrency. Yeah. They like to make a deal. So like, they like to make <laughs> the Cenobites, they get killed by Shenard in that battle or whatever. Um, mm. and then they're dead, but they're in hell from, from what we've been led to believe. Shouldn't this battle that they're going into with him be equally, you know, they should be stoked about it because they're going to be tormented. It's like equally painful and pleasurable. And shouldn't it be eternal? I mean, how does anybody die? I don't it doesn't make any sense to me. I feel like um, I've had that discussion related to something else where if you're already in what is considered this afterlife, you're at the final mystical supernatural state of being, where do you go from there? Then I guess you you're just like your existence is completely obliterated. Yeah, I guess. I mean, that kind of I just imagine into... that they reconstitute. They, I figure they just reconstitute themselves somewhere else, or they just can, kind of the way that they disappear into electricity and into this like yellow yeah. electricity. Right. I just imagine so, okay. that they just can reappear. So they, 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 this is just the ultimate respawn. <laughs> 
<laughs> just right. come, they're, they're just demon. come they're back demons, to play right? the game again. <laughs> yeah, I guess. So why is Frank allowed to have skin at all? I mean, he's a prisoner from hell that breaks out in the first movie. You know, he fights and fights through the movie to, to reanimate his human form. And then he's taken back to hell at the end of the first movie. Right. Totally eviscerated, like you're saying. But then he has skin and shit like all the 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 pleasantries of being a mortal person. Wouldn't wouldn't they be wouldn't he be like a pulp, especially after defying (laughs) the Cenobites? You know, they think that you wouldn't give him this luxury of having sensory nerves and 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 things like this skin provides. Um, yeah, they're just going to give him a psychic torture. Oh, you can't have sex. Isn't that terrible? Yeah, right. There's no yeah. like, so, physical torment of him. Right. And then I, I can't remember who asks. Um, I th- It's not Kirsty. I don't know who it is. But somebody asked Tiffany, what are you doing? What is this thing? What does it do? Like in a stream like that. It's called a puzzle box. So, I mean, that answers the first question right there. What are you doing? I'm solving a fucking puzzle. That's why I am. Which brings me to another question. She's been committed because she just is a puzzler. Yeah. And that's what we're led to believe. That her mom. She's did, She's just way into puzzles. It's not that she's autistic. It's not that she just likes them a lot. I, fuck, I do a lot of puzzles. Yeah. You know? Don't, I was going to say, don't don't get caught doing too much Sudoku or do, <laughs> to Dr. Shenard you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, even if, <laughs> even if she is a really, really good puzzler, how could she possibly know how to solve this fucking puzzle in the time that they've been down there? And being in the labyrinth and all of that, does she have any kind of you know, background on mysticism or occultism or anything to know. I think she's just considered to be like a prodigy. Right. Yeah. I I get that. But I mean, they're dropped in bunch of halls, big spinning fucking demonic puzzle box monolith in the sky. That really doesn't give anyone much to work off of, but she, she can just figure it out. It's it's hard for me to, to swallow. Um, how is it that people are just able to roam free from their wards after lights out? Kirsty goes to see Tiffany through her window. She just actively mm. leaves her room and Kyle, the doctor doesn't, there's no repercussion. He's just like, Oh, Hey, what's up, babe? Here's some stuff to help you yeah. sleep. <laughs> That's weird. Um, among other things, I'm, I'll just cap it off with this. Uh, how is it that at the very end, the last things that we see, aside from the fucking moving guy, fucking moving guy getting blood on him or whatever and bringing it back again. But Tiffany and Kirsty just walk out the front door of the asylum after all this shit happens. Now, yeah. <laughs> let's just, okay, I understand. Shenard, all these people to the rest of the facility just disappeared. And then they reappear. All those people are dead. But Kirsty and and Tiffany just walk out the door. They're cured. Or, you know, the warden's not here to say that you're not cured. So I guess you're free to go. 
Because it was all just a prison of the mind. Well, tell that to the eight fucking people that got slaughtered by Chenard in the real world where they put up the <laughs> memorials on their beds. You know? That was my question is like, that's what they do is they just throw some wreaths on the patient's bed. Hell yeah. <laughs> they don't even have Dude. names. Patient number, bed number one. There you go. Bed there number you go. Two. You get a wreath. You get a wreath. You get a wreath. Everyone gets wreaths. But one of the patients in the beginning, he says it about Dr. Tenard's like walking around and he's like, lovely day, lovely day, isn't it? And one of the patients says, I've been here for a hundred years and he doesn't even remember my name. Yeah. 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 It's fraught with questions for me. So many questions. Uh, One question I had too. This is something that uh, comes up in my mind when I see other movies where there's an individual that's where I, I think we talked about it maybe with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where somebody is wearing somebody else's skin. Yeah. But it fits perfectly Perfect. on their own bone structure. So there's the whole thing with Christy wearing Julia's skin and yeah. it's it conforms to her bone structure perfectly. Well that's because How is that? well it's because hell is a very aesthetic place. Hell just has yeah. this like cryo vacuum seal ability with skin because you've got to <laughs> look good down there, you know? The Cenobites look bitching. They do. They look great. They are sexy as fuck. They, they're, yeah. So there you go. He's a little answer side. that question. You think they have a better tan being in hell with all the flames? Yeah, that's true. With all the fucking, it, yeah, the fire and brimstone. Right. Yeah, but it looks like it's a very cold hell. It's like the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. So. There's lots of, uh, you know, cold and darkness. I heard that that's what the real hell's like. That's what I heard too. Such a shame. No more delays, Kirsty. No more teasing. Time to play. Time to play. Wait. No more deals, Kirsty. It is your flesh we want to experience, not your skill at bargaining. No deals. Just. Information. Just information! Go on. But trick us again, child. And your suffering will be legendary even in hell. Moving on. So we're going to move on to the awards and categories section. <laughs> Starting with quotes. Um, this, is a, this is the opposite of the other movie that we just talked about. There's a lot of one-liners in this, some good, some bad, as as you guys point out. One thing that I wanted to point out is this is also another one of those movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 that is used very frequently uh, in metal and punk and industrial music. One being notable for me was always the who the fuck are you that Christy says. That's <laughs> used by Buzz Oven. Yeah. Um, uh, and then there's the uh, one where uh, Chenard is talking about the labyrinth of the mind. And he says, we have to see, we have to know. I'm drawing a blank on it, but that is used by some other band. I know that for a fact. It's like at the end of a song where it's like very heavily reverberated. Um, but I had those uh, two. Ryan, do you have any particular ones? Yeah, like uh, I, I think I said it already um, about uh, um, 
uh, you. I know what you're gonna say. I'm pretty sure. Not not hands that not hands that call. It is desire. I, I love that yeah. one. And, it's not uh, hands. Really it's like, not hands that summit us. It's it is desire, right? Um, yeah, I, I that's like good. That, uh, Uncle Frank says says something really gross to Christy. He goes, "Oh, Christy, so ripe in your confusion, so luscious in your pain." But yeah, that's, cool that's pretty good. <laughs> that's pretty good. Pretty sadistic. I just had um, the one that the one that always stuck out to me is equally stupid. The scene, but the line is good when he's talking to um, Christy. Pinhead is, and he says, "You know, fool us again, girl, and your suffering will be legendary even in hell." Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably the most famous one-liner from this one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, the Derek Zoolander Award for the biggest idiot in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> what? You just can't wait. Who? Who is it, Brandon? It's the all of the fucking Cenobites. They are the dumbest <laughs> motherfuckers. I mean seriously if you were trying to get something done uh send in somebody that has like send in the leprechaun the leprechaun is ambitious you know the leprechaun's goal oriented these fucking dudes they stand around as if to as if to just you know wait the hubris of them they stand around as if to wait for someone to just comment them on how fucked up they look and then, oh yeah, we're here to persecute somebody that summoned us. Sure, they're the fucking dumbest motherfuckers. Orion, do you have a different take? <laughs> uh, probably Kyle, because he's just like such a fucking like. He like goes and sees all of Channard's stuff and like sees the bloody mattress and everything, and he's just like, oh weird. Fucking weird, man. Weird. Like, he's, yeah, he's, he's just kind of like a fucking dope, and he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't really do anything to help the movie. Like, I don't even think we've he's, talked about him at all the whole time. He's, like, yeah, he's just he's totally the. Um, he's like the Keanu Reeves of the hospital. He's just fucking. Oh, I wonder if Shinard will be in on Monday after seeing all this I, shit. I think the, yeah. the last thing he says is like. Oh, this is terrible! And then, like Julia's, like, "Yes, this is terrible." And then, like, sticks her <laughs> hand and his drains his essence or whatever. But... Uh, yeah, it's good. <laughs> uh, I mean, I agree with those. I would also probably say Shannard, just because. Yeah, you should have saw this coming, my man. Yeah, you he know? really, he really stepped right into that one, didn't he? uh the joseph and the technicolor dream code award for the best order of makeup well i would say this also probably goes to the cenobites yeah Yeah. i mean without i mean they're iconic they're iconic slay all slay all day sure sashay away yeah slay all day not not dr channard though he sucks not his cenobite no he sucks no the channer the channer the cenobite sucks uh the the og ones though Damn, they'd yeah. be looking fine. Uh, <laughs> this should be an interesting uh, one to figure out. The Cosmo Kramer Award for the most likely to appear in a Seinfeld episode. Would that be uh, Kyle or yes. Kevin? Is it Kyle? Yeah, I said Kyle. I said Kyle for sure. He's the only person who is palatable enough to make it into it. <laughs> I mean, what 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 other options do you have? Tiffany is a mute. Um, uh, Julia. 
I'd say Julia would be good because she's kind of like could be like some you know one of Elaine's main coworkers or something like that. Uh, she's so like cold. I would say and... I would. Yeah, I would say pre pre um uh the the previous Julia the 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 one that was actually a corporeal. <laughs> I don't know about I don't know about the reconstituted uh demon Julia. <laughs> that would be an interesting Seinfeld episode. <laughs> yeah, you're right. The re- probably Kyle. <laughs> yeah, I think Kyle definitely is like yeah, he 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 he's he would definitely be a dopey a dopey Elaine boyfriend for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh okay, the Danny Trejo award for the character most likely to have a spin-off. Uh, I mean, all of the Cenobites have spinoffs, but, um, yeah, probably Christy. She's the only like redeemable character that you would, that I think a wide audience would want to see how her life plays Mm -hmm. out after this. Mm -hmm. Maybe Tiffany, if they make her talk. (laughs) Yeah. I thought doesn't Tiffany does. She does talk, she right? She talks to her mom in the funhouse scene, but oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's true. I don't really know if we're supposed to, you know, infer that she talks now, or if that was even real. If it was a hallucination, I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's funny that that actress that plays Christy, um, she doesn't really. I feel like a, a. I'm just having a sidebar here. It's like she doesn't really appear. I feel like in a lot after these, she kind of got typecast with those movies and then you don't see her in any other Hellraisers. And I don't really recall her being in anything notable, uh, after this, she just seems to be, you know, relegated to these two movies. Right. Okay. Body count. What's the body count on this? Uh, I actually wrote this down. Um, this is just from my, my calculations. But I've got seventeen. But, okay. But that you have to consider that counts. Pinhead, as you know, Captain whatever his name was prior to mm-hmm. his death, to his turning into a Cenobite, and then him dying as a Cenobite. Also, actually, that right. counts all of the Cenobites because you see that they were somebody else prior to becoming a Cenobite. I don't know if that counts. What do you think? Well, that was similar to the discussion we were just having with demons. That's true, <laughs> but it's a little bit different because the Cenobites, the human form of the Cenobite, they definitely die. You know, yeah. they die as people. And then there are these things like the demons thing. It's kind of like they just tr- they go from being people to now infected people who are in mm-hmm. possessed with this demonic whatever so i don't know i can take it or leave it but if you count that that's basically chenard all the cenobites in both human and non-human form the eight people that are dead in the ward they just get a stupid fucking mm-hmm. flower for their contribution um <laughs> the get them off me guy browning yeah and then i counted ten. actually yeah i counted 10 corpses in um chenard's house but uh, like i said 
I could be I could be off. If you find something on on that a hard number, I'm curious. Yeah, I mean that seems about uh, right to me. Let's see. Uh, I saw thirty listed, are... but that seems like a lot. Thirty. Yeah. Is that what you said? Well, oh, wow. I mean, there could be a lot more than ten bodies in that how in Shinar's house that you know. Yeah, I, I kind of was that. right. Hmm. So it's somewhere in between seventeen and thirty. Let's put it that. It's more than a little by a lot. Yes. Okay. The wiki wormhole. Uh, the trivia. I told you about the. Uh, the soundbite there, the who the fuck are you? Um, we talked about how, yeah, Andrew Robinson refused to reprise his role as Larry Cotton. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, doesn't really explain why. I think I read that he just said that there wasn't anything for him. Oh, sorry. I think he just said there wasn't anything for him early in it, that, that, that they didn't really need him since he kind of already had completed his story cycle or whatever, unless he was going to be frank as as him or whatever uh yeah frank as larry frank frank wearing larry's yeah. skin suit <laughs> um this was interesting the horn sound that is continually made by leviathan is morris code for god yeah i thought that was kind of cool mm-hmm. very very cool um we already talked about how the Ceno- the word Cenobite means a monastic uh, order, or it's a member of a monastic order. Uh, well, what do you got? Do you got anything yeah. uh, other than that? Um, yeah, so the, the person who played the Chatterer, the Chatterbox mm-hmm. Cenobite, iconic from the first movie, he's, I think is in pretty much all of them. Uh, he also requested in this movie to have um, eyes to help his vision in his character. If you remember the first one, he he was sightless, um, which caused some discontent with fans who derided the new design, a scene in which the character receives his vision was removed from the final cut, causing confusion to the introductory scene featuring his original eyeless guys. Thought that was interesting. It's not really that Um, noticeable. No, I, well, I, I did. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I noticed him because I went, oh, he is, with eyes, he kind of looks more like the predator, like the sunken brow or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so let's see. Another interesting uh, factoid, Tony Randall, the director, claims that the dark tone of the movie reflected his own mindset on the world at the time. I, I don't know what kind of metaphor he was working in here but he either had like a real harsh toke with the medical industry or (laughs) he just uh was really into fucking occult and sucking the life and entity out of people in his real life or something um i thought it was interesting i i don't know what it said verbatim but that there was the idea to show all of the Cenobites kind of origin within the movie, like little vignettes about how they became what they became and how they died. You know, they, their death is symbolic to how they, their pleasures or whatever. I'm kind of glad that they didn't put that in, but um, 
That would have been interesting. Anyway, that's um well, no surprises here considering how much we talk about him on our podcast, but the film is included on the film critic Roger Ebert's most hated list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I read that. He didn't like See, either of them. Most Oh, yeah, okay. that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. He didn't like he didn't li- he didn't like anything. Okay. So, there we go. Um what is our iconography for this movie? Oh, man. There's so much shit. Um, I, I was gonna say out of five uh, uh, maggot covered straight razors. That's a good one, mm-hmm. Orion. Uh, 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 lament configurations. There you go. The MacGuffin good. box. <laughs> the MacGuffin box. Yes. Uh, that seems appropriate. Out of five MacGuffin boxes. What do you rate this? Ryan, what do you rate this movie? Um, it's probably going to be like a four. Uh, if the if the Channer character was cooler looking, it's it's pretty small like complaints that I have about it. But uh, all in all, I think it's really, as a sequel, it does a lot to sort of move the story along into a new area. And it is kind of have some things, like I said, things about it that... that keep it from being maybe a five but i do like it a lot so yeah four what do you think brandon uh i'm kind of conflicted this is one of those movies that i is is like scene by scene burned into my memory like it's very iconic to me um but upon watching it this time and seeing how many flaws are in it i wanted to ah I'm I'm teetering here, but I think it's ambitious enough. I'm gonna give it a f- I'm gonna give it a four for a horror movie. It's got flaws, of course, but it's it's real good. It's where I would give the first movie a four and a half. Yeah, I think I'd give this a four. Four. Yeah. Fucking MacGuffin boxes. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, like I said, I really like this. This is one of my favorite sequels. Um, it's interesting that like a lot of people don't like this movie, uh, which, you know, that's fine. Fair enough. Everybody's got their own opinion. But I don't know. I think this oh, is a very, that. very strong. What's ahead? <laughs> so fuck that. <laughs> yeah, really. But it, it, I think this is as far as follow ups to really, really strong openers in a franchise. This is a, This is up there. Very high up there. So, what were you gonna say, Brandon? Uh, I was gonna say that brings us into our category for for these episodes. Where yes. do you guys think this falls? Let's let's assign this as category one is cash grab. Um, yeah. Category two is a um, further extension to the story in an interesting non cash grabby way. Category three mm. being just a conclusionary capping off of the original story you know i would say number two yeah uh, yeah, yeah i I'm, I'm very much in the camp of two but i think that they knew that this was gonna b- gross you know so maybe mm-hmm. a little bit of one i mean barker didn't really have as nearly as, as much of a creative hand in this so it kind of makes me feel like Maybe it was a bit of a cash deal, but 
bringing some new blood into it and he reimagined it in a uh, interesting and bold way, bigger, bolder, right? The whole yeah. kind of purpose of a sequel. It seems I think it's more in the camp yeah. of category two as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that, that that's how I feel about it. So I don't know. This is a tricky one to think about as far as it being like where, like, because there's a lot of, again, playing with the idea of eroticism and sexuality. And there's, it's a very, very gory movie. So I feel like this would have to be a pretty late movie. Have to be. To experience. You could yeah. not, you could not show the second act of this movie on TV. Like yeah. when we were kids, you know, on any of the TV movie channels. I don't know how they could have shown any of this stuff. It's too graphic. Just to look at a Cenobite is too graphic. Right. Totally. I'm going to say HBO special 2 (laughs) a.m. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. It's got a good dream, dreamy feel to it too. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those movies that you would want to experience there later at night where it's just like, you're almost like having like a hallucinatory experience. You're having a hallucinatory boner over those fucking <laughs> leather clad, fleshy meets steel, you know, hunks from hell. <laughs> Interdimensional fucking leather clad hunks. <laughs> hey, we, we, we you almost got away without mentioning our sponsor for tonight. Oh, we got to tax. I know I fucked up. We're going to tax the sponsor on the end. All right. I yeah. got it. I got it. Let, let's, let's give, let's give a, let's give a hats off to our sponsor. And then we're going to wrap this baby up. Go ahead, Brandon. Yeah. Our sponsor tonight is Butterballs skin mask <laughs> toner and wood monolith shellac. It's a double barrel <laughs> multi-purpose toner oil for keeping your carnal trophies of the flesh as fresh as the day you flayed them. You know, there's nothing that you <laughs> there's nothing you need more than your wood totem monolith to be treated, cleansed, you know, con- lacquered. lacquered, conditioned to make it through the <laughs> eternal years of suffering that uh you know, you're going to impart on the rest of humanity in in episode three, four, five. How many fucking Hellraisers have they made? There's like ten. Yeah. Well, I want to thank yeah. you guys for sending me a year uh, your your supply. I, I I've been using it to polish up my skin flute. Hell yeah. <laughs> well, see, that's that's what you get for coming on the show. Look look at the, it does yield dividends, old, my friend. Old, so. old B-ball shellac. Our sponsor has sponsored <laughs> us with some B-ball shellac multi-purpose toner. For your D-balls. <laughs> <laughs> for waxing your B-balls. All right. Well, Orion, thanks again. Thanks for sticking with us for this uh, double header marathon. Yeah, man. Thank you. Yeah, burnt, burnt the mid, burnt the midnight oil for for the pod. The, Appreciate it. The midnight yeah, flicks oil. You, yeah, I know it's late out there, so we're gonna get we're gonna wrap this up to let you go. So. Appreciate it. Yeah, uh, no, I love always love talking with you guys. I uh, hope to do it again soon. Yeah. To be continued to another. Episode. I was gonna say, there's a, there's an open door policy with you. You know that you're always welcome back oh, on. Yeah.
This has been another deep dive into Midnight Movie Madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for our outro or our intro music. Our outro music is what is it this time, Ryan? Catabasis from uh, Felon's Claw on A389 Records. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, If you want to email us, go ahead and email us at midnightflixpod at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Midnight Flicks Podcast. Uh, signing off, as usual, this is Adam Walker for Orion Oblivion and Brandon Hayden. And we're going to see you for our final installment of our Flicks-tober series next time. See you, James. Yeah.